Let's continue to offer our hearts to God as we turn to His Word in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 35. Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 35. So what Luke writes. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, even as you enabled Simeon to see and receive Christ, so would you enable us this morning through your word to see and receive Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Our sermon series in this Advent season, if you've been with us, has been Songs for the Savior, when we've been looking at the first Christmas hymns. And if you've been here, you know we looked at the Magnificat, sung by Mary, and then the Benedictus, sung by Zechariah, and then last week, the Gloria in Excelsis Deo, sung by the angels. And this morning, we come to the Nunc Dimittis, sung by Simeon, so named like the other songs because these are the first words in the Latin translation of this song, Nunc Dimittis, now dismiss your servant in peace. A few years ago, I told this story, and I think it's apropos to tell it to you again. It's a story about John Coltrane, the saxophonist who played for Dizzy Gillespie and Miles Davis. In the early 1950s, Coltrane nearly died of a drug overdose. When he recovered, he quit drugs and he came to faith in God. And some of his best jazz music came after that, including A Love Supreme, a 32-minute outpouring of thanks to God for his blessing. And in the liner notes of that album, John Coltrane wrote these words. Dear listener, all praise be to God to whom all praise is due. During the year 1957, I experienced, by the grace of God, a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. I feel this has been granted through his grace. All praise to God. One night after an extraordinary performance of A Love Supreme, Coltrane stepped off the stage, put his saxophone down, and uttered the words, Nunc Dimittis. The words of Simeon's song, Now Dismiss Your Servant in Peace. Apparently, after playing this 32-minute jazz prayer to God, Coltrane had such a profound experience 
of the music, that he basically said, I can die happy and content now. Now, compare that story of John Coltrane with another musician at the other end of the spectrum in another age. Antonio Salieri was an Italian composer in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And in the movie Amadeus, he's the one who narrates the movie as a flashback on his life. He reflects back on his younger years, especially his devotion to God and his love for music. And as a young person, he pledges to God to remain celibate as a sacrifice if God will give him gifts in music. So he forges a career as a devout, God-fearing man who enjoys success and talent as the court composer for the Roman emperor, which he considers the rewards from God for his piety. He is content in that station in life until he meets Amadeus Mozart. In one of the scenes early in the movie, Mozart's meeting the emperor, and Salieri presents Mozart with a piece of music that he has slaved hours over. After hearing the piece only once, Mozart plays it from memory, critiques it, and then makes it better with a variation. And Salieri immediately recognizes Mozart's genius, but what he finds most galling is that Mozart himself is lewd and immature. And you can't forget his high-pitched giggle. Early in the movie, he's chasing girls under the table, and Salieri can't believe this. He can't believe that God would choose Mozart over him to bestow such incredible gifts. Salieri is not only angry towards God, he's eaten up by envy, and he vows to do everything in his power to destroy Mozart. And by the end of the movie, Salieri is an old man in an insane asylum. Obviously, it's, that's not a nunc dimittis. Um, this is the opposite. It's more like a nunc vindicta, which is the Latin word for revenge. Salieri is eaten up by revenge and envy, which destroys contentment. It keeps us from singing the nunc dimittis. At this time of the year, perhaps, our hearts can sometimes be filled more with envy than contentment. Young children are known to count their presents under the tree, and if they find that their sibling has more presents than them or bigger presents than them, the envy begins. Sometimes anticipation of opening presents is better than actually opening presents, because once they're open, we're disappointed that we got something and someone got something better. Keeping up with friends and family and social media is great at this time of year, but sometimes we can see posts and be filled more with envy than joy. And so one of the great gifts to receive at Christmas, I think, is the gift of contentment. The gift of a heart at peace. The gift of a heart fully satisfied. Like John Coltrane putting down his saxophone and saying, Nunc dimittis, I'm at peace. I'm content. I can die now. At the first Christmas, Simeon sings the Nunc Dimittis, a song of contentment. And I would suggest to you that if you want to experience contentment, Simeon shows us the way. Simeon's song of contentment says this, the birth of Christ brings contentment. And what I'd like to do this morning is show us three things that Simeon shows us. Who experiences contentment? What true contentment is? And how we experience it. Who experiences contentment? what true contentment is and how we experience it. First, who experiences contentment? Look at verses 25 through 28. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. 
Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Now, we don't know too much about Simeon except what we're told here in this account. We assume he's an elderly gentleman, but actually the text doesn't explicitly say that. We don't know what his vocation is, but Luke identifies him by his character. He is a righteous and devout man waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the question I want to ask with you is, why does Simeon get to see Jesus? Of all the people, why does Simeon get to see Jesus? Of all the thousands of people in the temple that day, why Simeon? The text doesn't say that it's because he's righteous and devout or because he's earned it by his good life. The text tells us it's because of the Holy Spirit at work in his life that he sees Jesus. Seeing Jesus is a gift of God's grace. Luke, I think, makes this plain. He mentions the Holy Spirit three times in verses 25 through 27. It says the Holy Spirit is on Simeon. So it's, this is not just human ability functioning on Simeon's part. He's aided by supernatural ability. Then Luke tells us that it's the Holy Spirit that reveals to Simeon that he would not die before he leaves the, uh, sees the Lord's Messiah. We'd love to know how the Holy Spirit revealed that to Simeon. We're not told how, but just that, the Holy Spirit revealed that to him. And then the Holy Spirit leads Simeon to Jesus in perfect timing. Verse 27, he's moved by the Spirit, Simeon is, and goes to the temple at the precise time and precise place to see and meet Jesus. The temple was a large place with lots of people, and so even if you knew someone was going to be there at the same time, no guarantees that you would meet them or see them. Same as if you go to the mall, the same time as a friend, and you know they're, they're, they're at the same time. No guarantees unless you plan to meet up that you'll actually meet up. But Simon meets Jesus here not as a coincidence, but because the Holy Spirit leads him to this place. I want to suggest to you that Simeon is a model for us in how the Holy Spirit goes to work in our lives. Because one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate Christ, to open our eyes so that we can see and recognize Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says in John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me by taking for what is mine and making it known to you. The spiritual reality is that we're blind to Christ until the Holy Spirit illumines us. I mean, how many people say, well, if I actually saw Jesus in the flesh, I, I believe in him. If I was actually able to see one of his miracles, I believe. But how many hundreds saw him in person in the first century? How many people saw his miracles and didn't believe? Joseph and Mary brings the baby Jesus into the temple, and many saw him but didn't see him. They just saw a little baby but didn't see Jesus. Simeon sees and recognizes Jesus because the Holy Spirit is at work in his heart and in his eyes. The Holy Spirit is resting on him, giving Simeon a longing to see Jesus, orchestrating the details of his life so he shows up at just the right time to see and receive Jesus. Who experiences contentment? It's those in whom the Holy Spirit is at work, creating this longing to see Jesus, orchestrating details of life, moving and orchestrating such that you see and receive Christ at just the right time time. Carolyn Weber grew up as an agnostic because she couldn't disprove God. 
but she was skeptical of organized religion. And the idea of Heavenly Father didn't go over too well with her because she grew up with a father who was in and out of her life, and she grew up in a broken family that she described as loving enough to get by, but broken enough not to deserve God's attention. She was surprised to receive a scholarship to study at Oxford for a PhD in Romantic Literature. She at the time was self-sufficient, driven, very academically focused, aiming to get her degree at Oxford and then just come right back to North America. But while she was at Oxford, she discovered a definite longing for something. She felt this longing. She experienced it. But she didn't have a concept or a name for it. She started studying religion at Oxford and started meeting some Christians and having dynamic and interesting conversations and realized all this time that that longing was growing stronger. It was getting more and more of her attention and was harder and harder to ignore. One Christian that she had come to know asked her a question that no one had ever asked her before. He said, who is God to you? And then went on to explain who God was to him. And that, she says, was the first time she heard the gospel clearly articulated. And it bothered her and disturbed her. She, but she found that she couldn't unhear it. She decided to read the Bible. After meeting Christians, she wanted to read the Bible and prove them wrong. She was a trained reader, after all. And so she snuck into St. Mary's Church across the street from her college because she didn't want to buy a Bible because that was too committed. She didn't want to use her book money on that. And so she went to a place where there were lots of free Bibles to read. Started reading from Genesis to Revelation as a book, as a trained reader. After she completed Genesis, she thought to herself, oh my, this makes sense. The post-fall world makes so much sense, and I hadn't planned on it making so much sense. The way my heart experiences temptation, how things are a choice. The distinction between wisdom and knowledge. So many things, she says, started to make sense. When she made it through the whole Bible, she said to herself, you can't make any of this stuff up. The pattern and purpose and story all the way through Revelation. She says it was a beautiful work of art. The best piece of creative nonfiction she had ever read. And it was also life-changing. She says everything began to slip into place. And I began realizing that this is a story of all stories. Everything, everything else I've been reading has been pointing to this. In fact, there isn't anything I haven't already read that doesn't glorify God. Even if it's a tragedy, it still points to this story. We can't escape the story. Every other story points to it. And Carolyn Weber was surprised by God at Oxford and became a Christian. My friends, I think that's the story of Simeon. The Holy Spirit is at work in our lives long before sometimes we're aware of it, creating this longing for something more orchestrating our lives so that we discover Jesus Christ. And this morning, if you are like Simeon and you have a longing for something more, you can't identify it, but it's a longing, that may be the Holy Spirit at work in your heart. If, like Simeon, you're waiting for the true consolation and true comfort to come, you haven't experienced it yet, but it's out there, it's some true consolation, that may be the Holy Spirit at work in your heart. If, like Simeon, the Holy Spirit is at work in your life and you're beginning to get the sense that someone is orchestrating the details of your life in the people you're meeting and the conversations you're having and the experiences that are coming your way, that might be the Holy Spirit at work in your heart. So that, like Simeon, the Spirit will lead you to see and receive Christ.
That's who experiences contentment. Secondly, what is true contentment? Look at the song of contentment that Simeon sings when he holds the baby Jesus in his arms. Verse 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Because Simeon has seen Jesus, he is content. He can die happy because he has reached his his ultimate goal in life. And in this song, Simeon describes what he experiences in Christ. He recognizes that Jesus is God's salvation, the covenant, the the consolation of, of Israel, the one who rescues and comforts God's people. Simeon, of course, doesn't know exactly how that will happen through Jesus. He doesn't know at this point that Jesus is going to die on a cross to redeem us. As we know, it's through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection by which he rescues his people from their sins. It's Jesus' death on the cross in our place by which we are forgiven of our sins and counted righteous and restored to relationship with God. Simeon doesn't know all that, but he knows that Jesus is that promised consolation of Israel. And not just for Israel, he is prepared in the sight of all nations. Jesus is for Jews and Gentiles, salvation for all people. He is the light for the Gentiles. Not that he isn't light for the Israelites, but he's especially light to the Gentiles because they were outsiders of God's covenant. Gentiles didn't receive the light of revelation in the Old Testament. No prophets were sent to them. The Gentiles were brought into God's covenant people through Jesus Christ. In their moral darkness, the light of salvation in Christ dawned on them. So Jesus is God's salvation. He's a light for the Gentiles. And then he's also the glory of Israel, Simeon sings. Not because he isn't glory for Gentiles, but especially he's glory to Israel. Because Israel saw the glory of God in the Old Testament. Remember, it's the pillar of fire that led them out of Egypt. The Israelites saw God's glory in that. And then when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. He came down on Mount Sinai in a cloud of thunder and lightning, a a moment of of supreme glory. And then later on in the Old Testament, God comes down on his temple in the Shekinah glory cloud. Israelites saw that. They saw the glory of God and longed for more. And Simeon says that the glory of God shines most clearly in in the face of Jesus Christ. See, the Gentiles are looking for light. And Jesus is the light. The Israelites are looking for glory, and Jesus is the glory. Simeon recognizes that that Jesus is the perfect resolution to all the many plot lines and stories of our lives, all the narratives, the great narratives of our culture. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. The Gentiles were looking for light. Israelites were looking for glory. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. True contentment is found in Jesus. Because he is the one that we've all been looking for and waiting for. He perfectly completes our story. One of the most powerful cultural narratives at the moment was expressed by Anna Quindlen, a writer for the New York Times, a Pulitzer Prize winner, as she addressed the graduates of Sarah Lawrence College. Here are her words. Each of you is as different as your fingertips. Why should you march to any lockstep? Our love of lockstep is our greatest curse, the source of all that devils us. 
is a source of homophobia, xenophobia, racism, sexism, terrorism, bigotry of every variety and hue, because it tells us that there's one right way to do things, to look, to behave, to feel, when the only right way is to feel your heart hammering inside you and to listen to what its timpani is saying. My friends, I would suggest that that's a cultural narrative. That's a life story, phrased also in, this, in these words, be true to yourself, which is being communicated to us right now from every direction, from movies and music and, and commercials. For example, in the Pixar movie, Turning Red, the daughter says to her mother, my panda, my body, as an expression of her right to follow her own path and be true to herself. This is one of the main cultural narratives at the moment. It's been also called expressive individualism. It says, be true to yourself. Listen to your own heart. Follow the beat of your own drummer. And the good thing about that is, in general, it's a good thing to be who you are, not someone else. It's a good thing to be personally authentic. But what happens if you follow your heart and your heart is filled with desires and appetites that will ruin you? Would you tell the drug addict to be true to himself? Would you say to the pedophile, follow your heart? Would you say to the terrorist, follow the beat of your own drummer? You see, just being true to yourself doesn't always work out so well. But my friends, Jesus is the only one who can help you complete this narrative to be true to yourself. Because Jesus is the only one that can change our hearts to make us fully ourselves, to change, us, uh, to change our sinful desires and appetites and make us new and fully human so that we can be true to who God has made us to be. My friends, this is just one, of, one example of how Jesus is a resolution to all the many plot lines and stories of our lives, all the big narratives of our culture, Simeon recognized that Jesus is the consolation of Israel, the one he'd been waiting for. Jesus is the light for the Gentiles that the Gentiles are searching for. He's the glory that the Israelites are searching for. And whatever the story of your life, whatever the plot line of your life, Jesus is the perfect resolution. See, how do you complete this sentence? I can die happy once I've I can die happy once I've blank. How you fill in that blank is how you define ultimate contentment in life. How you fill in that blank determines the storyline of your life. I can die happy once I've found my soulmate. I can die happy once I've bought my dream house or built my dream house. I can die happy once I've made partner in the firm. I can die happy once I've held my grandchildren. I can die happy once I've traveled the world. All of which are good gifts, but they make terrible gods because they will disappoint you. You can get all those things and still have a deep longing in your heart. Because my friends, Jesus is a true consolation. He is the perfect fulfillment of all the stories and all the plot lines of our lives. That's why true contentment is in Jesus alone. Not Jesus plus a spouse or Jesus plus a career or Jesus plus a certain lifestyle. It's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. Jesus is a true, true contentment by himself because in him we have everything. Because my friends, he is a true wealth, the true friend, the true spouse, the true pleasure, the true satisfaction. He is a resolution to all the plot lines and stories.
So then thirdly and lastly, how can we then experience Christ and his contentment? Look at these last words of Simeon, verses 34 and 35. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is a part of the Advent narrative that doesn't, doesn't make it into the carols or onto the Christmas cards because it's not all that sweet and sentimental. But what Simeon is saying is a sweet little baby Jesus will bring a conflict. He'll cause some to rise and some to fall. Some will embrace him and some will oppose and reject him. Because Jesus is not just a savior. He's also a king who demands full and complete allegiance. Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, such a man cannot be my disciple. Of course, Jesus isn't asking us to hate our families. He's speaking hyperbolically to say that our allegiance to him is that great. It must be greater far by far than our allegiance to our own family. Herod tries to kill the baby Jesus because he recognizes that he's a king who threatens his power. See, when someone comes into your life and, and says to you, you must love me more than anything else in your life, you can't be neutral about that person. You have a choice, either to submit and agree or to resist. 1 Peter 2 says Jesus is the cornerstone on whom some build their life. And for others, he's a stone that makes them stumble. Simeon says to Mary, a sword will even pierce your own soul. Because as Jesus' earthly mother... Mary will face a decision. Is Jesus under my power or am I under his? Simeon is singing that Jesus is both Savior and King. Because of that, he forces a decision. He brings a conflict. You cannot be neutral about Jesus. He will cause some to rise and some to fall. Which means that if you want to experience the contentment in Jesus Christ that he offers, you're going to have to make a commitment to him. You cannot drift into the benefits of Christ. You must make a decision and a commitment to Christ. When I was a seminary student in Philadelphia in the late 90s, I dated Tina for about a year and a half, and uh, she worked out of town that season. She'd come back to Philadelphia on the weekends, and I still look forward to the weekends. We'd go out to eat together. We'd go to church together. It's a bunch of friends. We'd go to the park and play sports together. And that year and a half went by very quickly. Dating was wonderful. But I knew that a decision was coming. A decision had to be made. Because I would graduate and I would look for a job and likely it wouldn't be in Philadelphia. And I realized that to experience the benefits of marriage to Tina, I had to make a decision, a commitment. I couldn't ask her to follow to wherever I was going if I wasn't willing to make a commitment to her. The reality is we live in a friends with benefits culture. We think we can have all the benefits without any commitment. What Simeon is saying here is Jesus is not a friend with benefits. He calls for decision and commitment. If we're going to experience the contentment of Christ, we've got to make a commitment to Christ. Jesus puts it this way in Luke 9. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. In his well-known words, C.S. Lewis paraphrases this verse this way. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. 
Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you'll find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. The problem, I think, is that we want Jesus without a commitment. We want spirituality without religion. We want Jesus at our own time, on our own terms. We want Jesus plus something else. But Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher in the 20th century, challenged his congregation this way. He said, don't come here if you honestly feel that you could do better elsewhere. Unless you feel that something is being offered and given to you here, which no other institutions can offer equal, well then, in the name of heaven, go out into the country or to the seaside. The Church of Christ is a church of believers and a common love. You don't believe? Well, above all, do not pretend that you do. Go to the country and the seaside. All I ask of you is be consistent. And when someone dies in your family, do not come to ask the church, in which you do not believe, to come bury him. Go to the seaside for consolation. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. If your friends are God, serve them. If your phone is God, serve it. If sports saved you from your sins, serve sports. If grades are going to make your life worth living, serve them. If movies and television and parties are what give your life purpose, then serve them. But my friends, if Jesus is God, then stop trying to hedge your bets. Simeon's song, The Nunc Dimittis, tells us that Jesus is the one we've been longing for and waiting for. He is the true consolation, the true contentment, the true fulfillment of every plot line and story in your life. And you don't drift into Christ. You need to make a commitment and a decision to him. Look for yourself and only find hatred, loneliness, and despair. Look for Christ and you'll find him. And with him, everything else. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you know that we have an almost infinite capacity for longing. And also for discontent. Our hearts are restless because they're made for you, ultimately. And so would you, by your Holy Spirit, work in us, orchestrate things, lead us to such a place and such a time that our eyes are open and we see Christ like Simeon did and receive him, whether for the first time or the hundredth time. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.